Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Idahoans have been working to stay at home and keep themselves safe during this pandemic, but what about those who have no control over their living conditions? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Marsha Franklin talks to Tamara Prysock, Administrator for the Division of Licensing and Certification at the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, about efforts to keep long-term care facilities safe from COVID-19 outbreaks. Then Ruth Brown of the Idaho Statesman joins me to discuss outbreaks at jails and Idaho Department of Corrections facilities. But first on Thursday, Governor Brad Little announced that though daily case numbers and test positivity rates are going down statewide. Once again, Idaho did not meet the criteria to advance past stage four of reopening the state. Governor Little emphasized the importance of taking care of at-risk Idahoans like those who are older or have pre-existing conditions. Close to half a million Idaho adults are considered at risk of developing a severe complication from the coronavirus. That's more than one third of our adult population. A woman in Rupert called her AARP Teletown Hall Tuesday. She said something to the extent, quote, I'm over 70 with diabetes and I'm getting tired of people acting like my life doesn't matter. The number of Idahoans doing the right thing far exceeds the people of Idaho who are skeptical of the pandemic. I assured the woman that our coronavirus response prioritizes protecting her and the one-third of Idahoans like her, those with underlying health conditions, putting them at greater risk if they get infected with COVID. These are our neighbors, family members, and loved ones. All of our metrics to evaluate virus activity across the state are also designed to preserve healthcare capacity. We do not want to turn people away from hospitals like other states and countries have had to do, whether for COVID or a birth, an accident, a stroke, a heart attack, or any number of other issues that might send a person to the hospital. This is unacceptable. Such a situation would have even more devastating impacts on our economy and way of life. That has been our goal all along to protect lives and to preserve healthcare capacity. At the press conference, Dr. Christine Hahn, state epidemiologist, discussed where Idaho fell short on metrics for advancing past stage four. We're looking pretty much like we did two weeks ago, meaning our case rates, as you, as let's see, that's, yeah, that's what we're showing up there. Uh, our case rates are declining. Um, they have been declining now for several weeks. And uh, very encouragingly, the percent of tests that are done, these are PCR tests that are diagnostic tests, the percentage of tests that are positive are declining. Uh, and we're now uh, just over 8% positive. It's not where we need to be. Uh, we're not feeling secure and safe. And as the governor mentioned, we know that with flu season coming, with more people coming indoors, with the Labor Day weekend approaching, 
Uh, we are concerned that people will be uh, gathering together more, there'll be more chances for transmission, and we're very concerned uh, whether we'll be able to keep going in this downward trend. But for now, we're very encouraged by these numbers. Next slide. Um, the syndromic criteria, which looks at emergency department data, also is showing a decline in the, not only in the number of emergency department visits related to COVID, uh, but also the number of people admitted to the hospital with COVID-like illness. Again, we do continue to see uh, admissions, uh, but they are below our thresholds. So uh, we passed on, on this criteria. But in our healthcare capacity, which is so important uh, to us, uh, despite having available ventilators and ICU beds that continue to be available, we still continue to have sufficient PPE. But unfortunately, we do continue to see people uh, this is data from the hospitals just in the last few days, and this is not the uh, burden in the hospital, but the number of people being admitted, whether it's through the emergency, it's different than the emergency department data because people could be directly admitted uh, by a provider, not through the emergency department. Uh, but those numbers tell us that we continue to see uh, people being admitted to the hospital with possible or confirmed COVID every day. Regardless of where Idaho is as a state, some individual regions are still active hotspots and many school districts are opting for blended schedules or are starting their school years entirely online. For many families, that means one parent has to change or reduce their work hours to stay at home with their students. And full disclosure, I'm in that same boat. At the press conference, I had the chance to ask Governor Little about those families and the potential effects on the economy. I'm wondering if the state's economic forecasts have accounted for the number of people, especially women, who have had to um, leave the workforce and are now um, not contributing as much to the economy. And is there anything the state is planning to do to address that? Uh, well, precisely, we don't know. Um, we, we don't know how many people uh, are staying home and still uh, fulfilling all their uh, duties uh, and and working remotely. Uh, I will tell you, let's see what's today. Um, uh, we what what's interesting to me is the sales tax revenues, uh, the robustness of sales tax revenues, which are an indicator of of economic activity up there. We we forecast originally early on uh, that we'd have a 14% reduction in general funds coming in. And that was uh, part of the actions that we took, uh, the 1% and then the 5% into next year. Uh, but, you know, our the, the cash coming in is higher than we anticipated. Uh, but all the things that I talked about uh, earlier is if we can reduce the spread, uh, the more we reduce the spread, the less that damper will be out there. But if everybody throws their hands up and doesn't and does none of the things that that we've advocated for, it's going to have an impact on tax revenue. There's no question about it. We'll have more on the ripple effects of distance learning on next week's Idaho Reports. As of midday Friday, 212 Idahoans in long-term care facilities have died of COVID-19. And Idaho has seen a total of 158 outbreaks in these facilities, with 94 experiencing current outbreaks.
On Thursday, Marsha Franklin spoke to Tamara Prysock, administrator for the Division of Licensing and Certification at the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, about inspections at long-term care facilities and plans to quarantine residents who test positive for COVID-19. Well, Tamara, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're so, so busy. In fact, I can't even imagine how busy you must be. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Marsha. I want to start first with some um, new news and, and, and very important, and that is that um, your agency did infection control surveys, which are required, of the long-term care facilities in our state. And uh, while there were about 50 uh, deficiency-free uh, inspections, there were a rather alarming 66 citations, including nine what you call immediate jeopardy citations. Could you help us understand those numbers and um, what the problems are? Sure. Um, first of all, let me put a little context to the infection control surveys. Part of the work that my division of licensing and certification does in the Department of Health and Welfare is that we're a contractor for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, to do specific inspections for them, for those facilities who that are federally certified to receive Medicare and Medicaid as part of their payment. So we do that work for CMS. And the infection control surveys that we do are mandated by CMS and they're only in nursing homes. We don't do those in assisted living facilities or intermediate care facilities. Um, but those infection control surveys, initially we were required to do one, an initial infection control survey in each of the 82 nursing homes in Idaho. And we completed those um, by January or July 31st, which was the deadline. But CMS also has outlined um, other situations in which we're mandated to go back to a facility and do another infection control survey. So even though there's 82 nursing facilities in Idaho, we have done 115 right. infection control surveys. And right. so some of those facilities we've been, um, but been there more than once. So as you said, out of those 115, um, First, I want to highlight that there were um, 49 of those surveys that were deficiency free, meaning that the, those facilities are doing an excellent job with their infection control protocols. Um, there were 66 of those surveys where we ended up citing something related to infection control protocols, and they range from very minor things to some pretty serious issues. And for example, the nine immediate jeopardies what an immediate jeopardy is, is it's, um, it's a situation in which what is happening in the facility is causing immediate harm to the residents and needs to be corrected immediately. So in those nine facilities where, where we found issues that were serious enough to call what's called an immediate jeopardy, um, we work with those those facilities immediately to correct those. So those so those would be what mixing co uh, people who have COVID with people who don't have COVID. As I understand, yes, that's that's one of the ways letting that, people into the facility who have not been tested uh, or passing the screening process for correct. allowing people into the facility. Um, when will people be able to see those results and know which uh, entities had those um, deficiency reports? How long before we can see those? 
Well, what the process that we go through is we do the inspection and then we have to come back to the office and write the report. And then we work with the facility on a plan of correction. And that's the period of time that that's the big chunk of time between when the survey is completed and when it's actually posted on our website. Because so do you think it'll be about a month or something before people it's, can see? Yeah, it usually it takes um, anywhere between 30 and 60 days. Okay. From the time that we exit the facility until we actually get the report posted on the website. Okay. And you know, there's been a lot of um, consternation as well because some of the actual um, examiners or surveyors who went into those facilities, it turns out that a couple of them um, were COVID positive and that the facilities didn't hear about that for a while. And in fact, uh, a couple of weeks later started reporting um, some COVID positive cases. So there is consternation about that, that, that those surveyors were in, were in there while they were COVID positive. Yes, we, in mid-July, we did have two surveyors that ended up testing positive. Um, first, I want to mention that if any surveyor is symptomatic at all, we do not send them to facilities. We immediately have them tested. We have the surveyor self-isolate for the period of time um, until the test comes back, and we don't send them back out into facilities until we know there's a negative test. We did have two, or two surveyors in mid-July who did test positive for COVID and had been in um, facilities conducting surveys um, prior to testing positive. And because it was the first time that it happened, it did take us longer than we wanted it to take to get a process in place for notifying those facilities. I believe in, um, in one case, um, none of those instances, I think, took more than two weeks to notify the facility. However, that is unacceptable to us. And since then, we have developed a process that will allow us to notify the facilities within 24 hours of discovering that there is a surveyor that has tested positive. And Tamara, you know, uh, most facilities are still on lockdown. People can't just come in and out, but staff obviously do come in and out. Yeah. So if there are um, uh, cases in, in facilities, it's most likely that they've been brought in by staff. Um, you know, people will wear masks and PPE in the facility, but outside they have their own lives. How can you um, monitor those situations or um, make it more likely that a staff member is not going to bring COVID into a facility? Well, think, um, for instance, do you think, do you happen to think a mask mandate, a statewide mask mandate would help? Actually, the state um, coronavirus long-term care strike team that I co-chair with Dr. Marsha Witte, our strike team is actually, um, we have developed a proposal for mandatory mask wearing in long-term care facilities. And now we're just working um, with our public health experts and others um, to put that mandate in place. Our I guess maybe I'm confused. You mean in the facilities? I'm also talking about outside the facilities. How do we help make it um, possible for fewer cases to come into the uh, long-term facilities? As I understand it, one way would be uh, there's new testing machines that are going to start testing staff members, regardless of you know even if they're asymptomatic before they come in. Yes, actually, there are rigorous screening processes that happen in facilities, um, even staff 
go through those screening process, our surveyors go through those screening processes when they enter a facility. So yes, the screening processes are key. Also the testing, um, ramping up testing in long-term care facilities. And we have a, a couple of initiatives going to increase the testing in long-term care facilities, which would include some surveillance testing in nursing homes. So that will definitely help. Um, but even, though that, even though there's screening and, you know, that, as you mentioned, screening of, of staff and visitors, we're still seeing such a high um, incidence in, in long-term care facilities. I think over 200 deaths now and certainly close to 60% of the deaths in the, in the state are from long-term care facilities of COVID. Yes. Somehow the, 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 it's, it's getting into the facilities, even with the screening. Yes. And you know, the people that are in long-term care facilities, they are some of the most vulnerable people we have in the state. So promoting mask wearing outside of long-term care facilities is critical. Um, one of the most heartbreaking um, issues that comes up with the pandemic is the issue of visitation you know, families coming into facilities to visit, um, to visit their loved ones. And, you know, facilities feeling like they aren't comfortable completely opening up to in-facility visitation because of all the things that you just mentioned. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of things that are happening to try to keep the virus from being transmitted within a facility or even brought into a facility. Now, another piece of new news, uh, you went before the Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee and requested $10 million uh, additional dollars on top of the $13 million that's already been allocated from the federal government um, for uh, quarantine uh, areas, you know, because some of the problem here, as you did, you know, mention with the Jeopardy citations is that we're, we've got some mixing going on of COVID positive and non COVID positive people. Could you very briefly describe these um, quarantine centers and where they'll be located and how people will end up in them and for how sure. long? Sure. Um, so we're, we refer to those as COVID exclusive facilities or COVID exclusive wings. We learned early on in the pandemic that, as you mentioned, that it is very important to separate those residents in a facility that are COVID positive. And some facilities are well equipped to do that. They have a wing that they can devote to um, caring for those individuals that have COVID-19 so that they can separate those residents from other residents in the facility. But there are a lot of facilities that don't have um, that kind of setup in their facility to be able to do that. So we learned early on that there was a need to have, um, we first called them alternative care locations, someplace that a resident that couldn't be, that had COVID-19, that couldn't be cared for in the current facility, someplace for that resident to be cared for. And what has ended up happening is we've had existing facilities, both assisted living and nursing homes, that have stepped up and said and offered to become COVID exclusive um, facilities or to dedicate a wing of their building to serving only COVID positive residents. So, um, so this, this money will help ramp up more of those yes. uh, uh, sole uh, facilities where people will be moved away from the other population. And yes, then they'll, exactly. they'll be there until their cases are 
till several weeks after their cases have finished. I mean, you know, the symptoms. Yes, that's and exactly. Now, you mentioned before the conversation that one of those will be uh, Arbor Valley, which is a Cascadia company. When I just did a cursory search, or, you know, when I looked at the latest report, which was last week, um, Cascadia has a lot of um, cases of COVID in its facilities. Um, do you feel confident in, in choosing one of those homes as your uh, quarantine facility? Yes, yes, I do. You know, through this pandemic, there have been specific times when a certain facility might struggle for a bit to, to kind of get things under control and kind of get their legs under them if they have an outbreak. Um, but overall, both assisted living facilities and nursing facilities have done fairly well. I mean, it's, it's very difficult, the, the challenges that they're facing. So yes, and we would not, um, we would not feel comfortable, you know, if there was a facility that stepped up and said, you know, we would like to become a COVID exclusive facility, but um, we can really see that they have struggled since the beginning to manage COVID in their particular facility, then no, we would not feel comfortable in that situation. But those facilities that have stepped up to date, we do feel comfortable having them care for COVID residents. As we wrap up, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, I can't even imagine having a job like yours. It must be extremely stressful. If you were in charge, you know, for a day, uh, queen for a day, is there something really that you would just really want to see to help your clientele, the staff, the people in the facilities? What do you think would be one of the biggest things that would help lower the rate that we're seeing in long-term care facilities? Yeah, if I could be queen for a day, I would um, have everyone in Idaho remember how vulnerable people are in long-term care facilities. And um, I would have everyone wearing masks and everyone social distancing. <laughs> yes, it is interesting when I hear people say that, oh, you know, only old people are getting this and, you know, and somehow inferring that that's okay. Um, they are certainly individuals with their own lives and loved ones as well, despite their age. And yeah. people also forget, I think, that there are people in long-term care facilities of all ages. Exactly. Know, not, just, not just the elderly. They serve people who've been in traumatic injuries as well. Yes. So anyway, thank you for your time. And I'm sure that we'll be checking in with you again uh, and learning more as the situation proceeds. Thank you. Thank you, Marcia. Long-term care facilities aren't the only institutions trying to keep their residents safe. Across the country, jails and prisons have struggled with how to control outbreaks of COVID-19 among incarcerated people, and Idaho is no exception. Ruth Brown of the Idaho Statesman has been covering those outbreaks and joined me on Friday to talk about mitigation efforts. Ruth, thanks so much for joining us. What's the situation for incarcerated Idahoans right now? Uh, so there is outbreaks at multiple jails and multiple prisons within uh, Idaho. The state prisons have about 8,800 uh, inmates, and of those 8,800 inmates, about 1,300 have been infected. Uh, some of those individuals have recovered. They've seen two deaths uh, due to COVID, and so that's a lot of people who have, um, have been infected with coronavirus. How has this affected visits to the facilities? I mean, the, the IDOC facilities are pretty well locked down at this point, aren't they? 
Yeah, um, the Idaho Department of Correction Facilities are no longer taking in-person visits. Most of the county jails that have had infections are also uh, ceasing uh, any in-person visits. The inmates, of course, do have calls and can send emails and um, virtual visits. I suppose you could say they're um, video messages. But I mean, it, it is a challenge, I think, for many of the families. I've interviewed many families who have incarcerated loved ones, um, and they are concerned. Um, many of the inmates are older or have um, some sort of pre-existing condition, just like many residents in the community have some sort of pre-existing condition. Um, so those families are concerned about what the prisons may or may not do. And what are you hearing from the Department of Correction about mitigation efforts? So they are making real efforts to um, monitor the staff that come in uh, because it is largely at the prisons an external problem. Um, they're incarcerated. Some of them have been incarcerated for years. And so it's an external problem in that uh, staff could bring it in, volunteers could bring it in. Uh, so they are monitoring the staff that come in, taking their temperatures, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, the more we know about asymptomatic individuals uh, carrying coronavirus, that is a concern. Um, if there's an outbreak in a certain tier or a certain unit of the facility, they're making efforts to separate um, inmates. But it is problematic because there are only so many square feet within the building. Right, you can't very well quarantine that many people in the facility, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, there are only so many, they call it ADSEG, administrative segregation. Uh, there are only so many isolation cells. Uh, I mean, that they, they live in a community setting. What are you hearing from uh, Idahoans who are incarcerated out of state? Uh, so, the Idaho Department of Corrections has a contract with a uh, private prison in uh, Texas, in Eagle Pass, Texas, where they house about 600 men. Uh, that facility's contract is up at the end of September, so they are actively moving some uh, inmates who are in Texas to a facility, another private prison in uh, Arizona. And so there is concern with just uh, the process of moving inmates um, exposing them to new people, uh, and, and that becomes problematic with the spread of the virus. And Arizona, of course, uh, consistently being one of the hotspots in the nation, too. Uh, briefly, you mentioned that you had talked to many families who were concerned, and it, it's easy to forget about the incarcerated individuals because they are behind walls, but uh, th there are so many families who really are concerned about their loved ones. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've heard from uh, from mothers, from uh, individuals who have boyfriends and girlfriends that are incarcerated, uh, spouses. Uh, almost uh, the majority of the women incarcerated are mothers, and so they have uh, children. And those children that are older, you know, over eighteen, uh, certainly reach out and are concerned about their parents. I think people forget that most of these inmates are not going to be serving a life sentence. They're going to be in for a couple of years and then be back out in the community. So they have loved ones that are looking forward to their release. Ruth Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Of course.
Thanks for watching. For updated analysis and COVID-19 numbers throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Twitter and Facebook. And make sure you subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast in your favorite podcast app for updates in audio form. See you next week and stay safe, Idaho. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.